Today on the podcast, novelist Chess Smith. We talk about being depressed and vulnerable while being male, the inherent difficulties of writing characters who act suspiciously, like a lot of the people you work with, but who are not them, and how writing metafiction offers a way to follow the undesirable parts of yourself to their worst conclusions, so you can avoid doing that exact same thing on social media. Also, we all fantasize about what it would be like if Kate could ever remember the titles of books, movies, podcasts she wants to recommend to people. So in her, in Mina's, Mina's angry post on her door last night, it said these kids' names and then said they're both real jerks and all the other bad words. Oh, my word. Oh yeah. So Facebook much self-reflection. Post. Yes, that's, yes. That's what the tagline should be. Twitter, a place for self-reflection. <laughs> I don't peg you as a sci-fi guy. Uh, I, I did have my long stretch of sci-fi. Did you? Yeah. Was that assigned to you in school, or you? you just no. That? I I just picked it up. And then you decided to get a PhD in theology? <laughs> yes, that's how the story goes. If there's Eddie Izzard's take about Hitler being a failed artist, have you seen it? Yeah. Where he's like, I can't get this tree right, I will kill everyone. <laughs> uh. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. Chess Smith is a former seminarian turned atheist novelist who lives and writes in Houston. When he's not working on darkly witty metafiction, he's waxing poetic and sometimes irreverent via email and tongue-in-cheek study guide to the staff at Myerland Performing and Visual Arts Middle School as their IT professional, which incidentally describes the protagonist of his newly released novel, The author is dead. His writing is by turns dark and lonely, then full-throated and uproariously funny. The themes of the narrative are weighty, often posing questions we can't find answers to in the space of a novel. How do we address mental health issues in a criminal justice system ill-equipped to handle them? How do artists find purchase, both personally and artistically, in what can feel like a world that is indifferent? These questions aren't easily tied up in a bow. As Smith said of his own storytelling in a recent Houston Press interview, humans are hardwired to seek a narrative to want to explain everything. But when you peek under the curtain, reality is so much messier, so much more convoluted. We're full of contradictions. For me, I think it's in the seeking that we find connection and why many have found that connection in this new book. We look forward to peeking under the curtain today with novelist Chess Smith. Thanks for coming on the show, Chess. Thank you. It's great to have you. As I said, you, you write about a lot of, of hard things in this novel, but so many parts of it were really, really funny. Would you mind setting up and reading maybe that, that excerpt about the, uh, the zombies? Sure. <laughs> this is um, when the main character is walking down the hall uh, at his job. For computer tech, the simple act of walking down the hall can play out like one of those zombie movies where the protagonist is cornered by one zombie, then two, then a hundred. I can't get on the internet. My computer won't start. My laptop is slow. Do you have one of those thingamadoos that plug into the, you know? 
can you watch my class while I run to the bathroom? They might as well be saying brains. Can't shoot them in the head either. Can't even joke about shooting them in the head. <laughs> the monotony was exhausting. Same questions, same people, over and over. Every day was my own personal groundhog day. You'd think educators who give instructions for a living would follow instructions themselves, but they can't. Nor do they understand that video and sound can float, can't float through space and magically appear on whatever device they will it to. And many of them certainly don't know that computers have to be plugged in to work or that, as a rule, they aren't liquid submersible and that plugging one in while submersing it in liquid could be fatal. <laughs> Monitors aren't made of Teflon. Laptops don't grow on trees. Oh, sure, they pretended to pay attention and learn to eagerly look over my shoulder with an eye towards self-sufficiency, but dismissed all thought of it only to call me in for the same thing a week later. Many of them perpetually played the damsel in distress, even the men. And I can tell you this, had I been Rapuzzle's fair-haired prince, I'd have left the bitch up there if she couldn't get down on her own, fuck her. The nice thing, though, about being a tech at a public middle school is that it almost requires being several years behind the technological times, which I was. Due to bu budgetary constraints and bureaucratic red tape, techs on the cutting edge couldn't handle the job, like a Formula One driver forced to race in an RV. <laughs> the bell rang. If there were a hell, it would consist of wandering a crowded middle school hallway for all eternity. Middle school children are brain damaged, incapable of walking in straight lines, speaking at normal volumes, or keeping their hands to themselves. And the smells. My God, the smells. Cologne works so quick it stings the eyes, dirty gym clothes, pee, vomit, low-cal soy meat in the cafeteria. If I were to design a school, I'd lay it out like rat's maze. One entrance, one exit. And the corridors between classrooms would be soundproof and only a foot wide. They'd eat Ridlin for breakfast. Well, so was writing this, particularly this section, a way of dealing with working at a visual performing arts middle school, public public middle school, as the IT guy? To, to some degree, I, I, I've been writing these emails for years, and, and I just kind of imagine what is the worst, laziest, most apathetic, and meanest tech guy I could imagine, and, and what would he write <laughs> to these people? <laughs> And uh, it, it seems to entertain them. Most of them aren't offended, I don't think. So you wrote, because so you were trying to get the staff's attention to various right. things that they needed to know, and you right. were not yeah. getting any feedback from them. No. If they just, were not reading. Yeah, them. standard emails just don't work. And, and even today, a lot of them tell me, yeah, I don't read emails. It's like a, kind of a stick it to the man pride, you know, I don't read emails. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I'm not the man. <laughs> yeah, so trying to help you. Yeah, so I, yes. I figured, you know, maybe if I give them a reason to read it, they'll they'll read it. And so a lot of them still tell me, you know, yours are the only ones I read. <laughs> it's, it's like, well, okay. <laughs> nice. We love the underground irreverent IT guide. Was it a precursor to the novel? And then you sort of. Yeah, I I think. You know, when I was, I, I was still kind of new at writing, I feel like, you know, they say write what you know, and I'm not sure about that advice anymore, but at the time I just thought, yeah, I mean, that's, what does this guy do? And it, it made sense that he does the same thing I do. You know, I can blow that out of proportion in all sorts of fun ways, so. Yeah, yeah. So. We spoke a bit, uh, last week Chess was at a reading at Brazos Bookstore here in town, and we got to speak about the book. And um, you talked a little bit about your experience dealing with your own depression, your own bouts of depression, and um, 
so this is not a question that goes, how much of this novel is true? Because obviously it's fiction and you do blow it up. But what I am curious about is how much of your work is colored by your own experiences dealing with the fallout of depression while still maintaining, you know, a life at home, a marriage, three kids, your job responsibilities. You know, a lot of it. I, I'm drawn to characters who feel very lonely, even, you know, in my case, you know, I, I, I didn't really have a reason to be being married with three great kids. You know, it's tough to reconcile feeling lonely in that, that's in that situation, but I, I'm just drawn to those kind of characters who are kind of struggling with that and, and who are misunderstood. I also, because this book is so much to me about the madness of art, I felt like you can't really address that without also de- addressing depression. At least anecdotally, there seems to be a clear correlation between depression and, and creative people. And so it, it felt like a necessary element um, and how that madness feeds on uh, somebody who doesn't feel adequate and, you know, the, the depression tells them you aren't adequate and, and it just it goes into a downward spiral mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying that most writers are depressed? Is that, is that the, the idea here? Is that I, the, the I correlation you're drawing? I don't think... I mean, I've read studies that say that that may not be as true as people think it is. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's just, and and when I use art, you know, creatives, I mean, broad, you know, Mm -hmm. painters, sculptors, musicians. But I think that there's, yeah. Podcasters. (laughs) Podcasters. Yeah. We're all mad here. (laughs) But yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry. I think that, uh, you know, that correlation is, is. Frequent. There's that kind of romantic idea of the depressed author. You think of, you know, Hemingway killed himself and David Foster Wallace, John Kennedy Toole. And, and I don't know that the writing itself was instrumental in those suicides. I think there was more going on there. But, but there, there seems to be a, a corollary that, that if they're not directly re- related, they're present at the same time usually. So. Yeah, driving each other. Yeah. Something awful. Or there's Eddie, there's Eddie Izzard's take about Hitler being a failed artist. Have you seen that? Yeah. Where he's like, I can't get this tree right. I will kill everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, and I think, I mean, there's also that feeling of, of, or desire to escape. So whatever it is, even if you're happy or you have nice things in your life that, can breed loneliness or I don't know isolation or disconnection like I feel like the author is dead with its honest exposure of depression and vulnerability from a male point of view it could be read as a critique of some of the very unhelpful rigid confines of traditional masculinity mm-hmm. that fictional chess uses Rejects. to escape and you know follow romantic fantasy and no I really appreciated that revelation of because I feel like we get a lot of romantic escape from male point of view but we don't all often get the the more honest right other side of that which is the depression was that one of your intentions yeah yeah I I uh I really have a strong reaction against typical male 
men don't cry, men don't feel, you know, and, and just a mm-hmm. terrible things, you know, guys say to each other in the locker room when when there's often something more going on and they feel like they can't really speak to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have to kind of pretend like it's not there. And I think it's it's just it's just a horrible way to be. I think that a lot of guys pass it on to their kids and, you know, right. don't cry, don't you know, don't be a pussy, you know, all of that kind of attitude. And, right. and uh, it's, it's just not helpful. Mm-hmm. I found the moment in the novel where Chess, the, the protagonist Chess, visits his psychiatrist, Dr. Norman, really moving and vulnerable and perhaps a little too close to home for us perpetually doubting writers. I'd like to talk about it, but first, could you, do you mind reading uh, from, from the excerpt and maybe just setting it up for us? Sure. Uh, he's talking to his therapist here. So the therapist is wondering uh, if Chess, the protagonist, trusts people's input and, and is wondering what kind of input he's gotten on the work that he's, he's uh, writing currently. It begins with the Dr. Norman saying, Do you trust other people's input? I thought about it as I collected myself, voice cracking. I once joined an online forum and submitted a, a short story I'd written for critique. I got good comments, bad comments, crazy comments, mean-spirited comments. I didn't trust the nice comments. I resented the ugly ones. It's a mess. It occurred to me that most of these people don't know any more about the craft than I do, and no matter what I submit, they will always have something to criticize. By that fact alone, it can never be perfect. It can never be finished. It's madness. Pure madness. It's like the philosophical paradox where you can never arrive at your destination, because no matter how close you get, you're still only halfway there. And he says, the dichotomy paradox. Yeah, that, know-it-all. <laughs> he had a look of extraordinary concern on his face, his posture stiff yet regal. I imagined him in graduate school, sitting in a class of students seated in front of full-body mirrors where they did nothing but practice these sorts of poses. <laughs> Out of curiosity, I continued, I copied a really beautiful excerpt from a novel that won the Pulitzer, one that wasn't too well known. What was the name of that book? I rubbed my head as if to conjure it, but I couldn't remember. Anyway, I posted the excerpt and no one even realized the source. I got three rather harsh critiques and the rest were only lukewarm. I did the same for a passage out of Cormac McCarthy book, Blood Meridian, and got five rather strongly worded admonitions to learn the proper use of punctuation, quotation marks in particular. (laughs) One of the creeks just said, and I quote, and, 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 learn to use a fucking comma, moron. (laughs) Cormac McCarthy, one of the greatest American authors of all time, for Christ's sake. I sat back, resigned. It seems to me that getting published is like having your work become concrete, no longer fluid. It's valid. On the published side of the fence, inconsistencies become ironies. Confused phrasing becomes difficult yet rewarding prose. Frustrating sparseness becomes artful obscurity. Deficiencies are imbued with meaning and purpose. It's goddamn madness. You're being dramatic. Maybe. Definitely. You write to connect, yet you don't feel that's possible? Before she died, Thalia said the artists don't create art to connect. They create art to ask one central question. What the fuck is wrong with you? And you know what? She was right. Successful art leaves its audience saying, yeah, what what the fuck is wrong with me? And what if it's just these readers that don't get it? Is it possible the problem is with the audience and not the art? You can tell yourself that if it makes you feel better. Smartass. My mind was clouded with a million contradictory thoughts. 
I can't tell if my readers don't understand brilliance when they see it or if it's because I simply am not brilliant. I suspect the latter, fear the latter. There are just so many voices out there and they are all the same to me and I cannot be like them. Sure you don't suspect the former? Ouch. I couldn't be so presumptuous. He scanned me with his one good eye for a moment from beneath his bushy eyebrows. Perhaps your greatest fear is that you are like them. I nodded. Maybe. Probably. Yes. Is that really so bad? He asked. To be normal? I balked at the question. Is it really so bad? It's the worst thing imaginable. How can I comment on the outward perfections of a box if I'm inside it? (laughs) Then how can you hope to relate, to be relatable? Maybe the central question of successful art isn't, as you so eloquently put it, what the fuck is wrong with you? Maybe it's what the (laughs) fuck is wrong with us? It may be that it's your stubborn refusal to adapt to find common ground with your audience that keeps you in this mental prison of yours. He shrugged and stared at me a long while, allowing it to sink in, probably hoping it would t- it might take root. So tell me about the, that idea of the dichotomy paradox. Did, that, did you have that as sort of thing you knew you were going to build a scene around, or did you write your way to it? It, it just occurred, occurred to me as I was writing it. I love it. Um, it's just this this feeling like there's always something to criticize. You know, it, nothing is ever finished. You know, I have a, an, an art background as well, and it was it was kind of like you don't really finish a painting; you just gotta get sick of working on it, and <laughs> and you're just kind of you know at a place where yeah, okay, I'm just gonna leave this alone now. Um, I'm happy and, to have like a philosophical principle to put behind the madness it's yes. 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 yes this is the dichotomy paradox okay. and now yeah. i can say hit save and send and i'm done and it, <laughs> the more you do it the further away it's yeah. it seem yeah yeah I, exactly and i'm over the course of writing this you know i i kind of wrote it to grapple with the madness of art and just this complex relationship i have with my creative life and and, uh, you know, I think the, the, the basis of it all is centered on the fact that art is just subjective. I mean, it's just completely subjective and, and uh, you never know how somebody's gonna respond to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's beyond your control, you know, there's just nothing you can do. this novel sit for you in terms because I know you write some genre or you've written some genre fiction and then you do visual art as well what what does this book mean in terms of your whole um, movement of work so far I think it's the most important to me personally um, my first book was kind of an experiment um, I was trying to work through faith issues and I put it in a, a it's, it's a sci-fi book but I always thought that if I was a writer, it would be a sci-fi writer because that's what I've always loved. But then I discovered that I actually don't, I'm not sure I like writing sci-fi all Mm -hmm. that much. And in fact, I'm thinking of rewriting the original, you know, as non-sci-fi, trying to figure out how that'll work. Interesting. Can I just say that I feel like um, working through faith issues and sci-fi do really go together, (laughs) at least as a first draft. Yeah. I don't know why. It seems to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it... Uh, it, it made a lot of sense to me. Um, it made a lot uh, of sense to C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. Um, Dune, I mean, uh, so many. What's the strangest part of having something this close to you 
uh, out in the world, this book. It, 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 it almost feels like my, my soul has been x-rayed and like put out there for everybody to look at. You know, and, and that's frightening because you never really know how people perceive you from, you know, the outside looking in. But when you put something like this out there, it's like, okay, now they're going to know what's rattling around in my head. And, uh, and they could say, and learn to use a fucking comma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, and I'm, I'm terrified that the teachers are going to be offended. So far, they all seem to really love it, but... You know, there was absolutely no character in the book that was based on somebody I work with. And it's so important to me that they know that. And that's that's one frightening thing is they think, you know, I, I would never want them to think I don't respect what they do. Um, this is an unreliable narrator. And I never perceived him as comprehending people around him accurately. You know, so. yeah, that's a good point. You had a lot of support at the at the reading the other night. And yeah. we, I mean, I, I haven't heard that many laughs. Brazos, that was great. <laughs> yeah, they they've been very supportive. Um, you know that that community in Ireland has just been incredible. So, you know, and, you know we've turned out a few authors. Uh, Mark Doster and yeah, Jim Matu both worked there. So tell me how that works. How how does your writing process yeah. work with a full time full time gig at the school and and the rest of your life's demands? Like three kids, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, you read so much about the craft of writing and sitting in front of the typewriter or the computer and forcing yourself to write. And, and I just, I just can't get there. I, I have to think about something. And once I kind of have it all structured in my mind, I can sit down and write. So, you know, I can think while I'm doing just about anything. Um, so I've, I've usually got a story working you know, a scene working in my head. So the physical writing part of it isn't as, as big a deal. Um, once I get it down, the editing part I actually like more than the initial writing. So that's... You and Jessica can hang out. Cause yeah. I... Yes, I was like, a person I agree with. Yeah. I've yeah. been trying to convince Kate of this for, seriously, like over 10 years. I'm like, if, once something is on the page, then you can... Yeah, you know, that's that's round. when I send it to you to move things around. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I think the first draft kind of like an underpainting, you know, but uh, the details yes. really come through later. I like that. I like that metaphor. So. But it's still hard with kids, right? I mean, both, both. I guess maybe for me, it is easier with kids to revise than to write fresh. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think when you're revising, you, you don't have to have a continuous train of thought right you, know, right. you can kind of look at it on a sentence by sentence basis mm -hmm. um my kids are getting older now uh, my youngest is uh, seventh grade so my oldest is oh, in wow. college okay. so it, it's it gets easier um so what's your next yeah yeah what's what's next what's in the uh coffers that's that's a difficult question. Uh, I, I got about 13,000 words into a story that I really like. And it's a time travel story. And so, like I said earlier, I find the world building and sci-fi part tedious. So now I'm up to that part where I have to actually start that 
stuff, and now I've, I'm having trouble staying interested in it. Um, so there's that, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, then there's another one that uh, I've really been more hot on lately of, of uh, uh, a murder investigation that um, rather than investigate, you know, who did it, um, all the different ways a small community can make inferences that are completely wrong and you know people that are blamed that had nothing to do with it and that just fascinates me that just that web of of uh, you know they, they they hang on to certain facts and let go of others and you know um, just we'll probably have to edit this out because this is one of those times where i bring up something i can't remember um and jess either bails me out or she doesn't so i'm hoping they'll bail me out this time jess <laughs> Okay. okay, there's a writer who writes two books at the same time. Oh yeah, that's um that we who we who we've interviewed on the podcast. Maybe or someone else. I don't know. Oh, G- give me your thoughts. Who is it? I thought I feel like I feel like Catherine Center does. That does would make sense because she's super prolific yeah. and like yeah. has she's editing one and just finished another yeah. one right now. Yeah, currently, yeah. which baffles me. But maybe. So that's who I would, and and I do think there are probably others that we've read about, um, but she came to mind immediately. She's kind of like the Thomas Aquinas of novels. (laughs) Yeah, right. Several books at the same time. But I think her point was sometimes she gets tired. She's like, I'm. I don't want to build this world right now, or I don't want to figure this dialogue out. So I'm gonna go do the other thing. Yeah. I also feel like Lauren Groff may have said that. Did I make that up? Possibly. Possibly. Oh yeah, Mm. possibly. No, that's that's very yeah. Hard. I think it, she said it about Fates and Furies that she was yeah. like yeah, Fates and Furies, and she was writing Florida at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She would go do yeah. like a little short story work yeah. and mm-hmm. exercise some demons, artistic yeah. demons, and then get back to her yeah. her novel. So yeah, you've got yeah. good company. You're in good company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I could <laughs> turn it into productive output that actually seems like it's going somewhere. <laughs> Well, it probably it probably like seems like it's not for longer because you're you know what I mean. You're not if you're taking like three steps in two places rather than six steps. But then yeah, then you have two things. Yeah. Or then you've used one as a crutch to get the other one done. I mean, I feel like we have to, I'll you know, to stave off the demons and and whatever we have to use whatever. Coping mechanisms. Oh, delusions. <laughs> so yeah, delusions, coping mechanisms, gimmicks, tricks, like outright outright lies to ourselves and others. Yeah. Cameron Cameron Deason Hammond was on the show a few weeks ago and she was like, I just tell myself no one's ever gonna read it. I just keep telling yep. myself the entire time no one's ever gonna read it. And she's like, It yeah. works like a charm. <laughs> yeah, I think I did that throughout yeah. this one. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I approached it like a writing exercise that I just didn't stop. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. I didn't ask uh, at Brazos, um, but I think it's. I think it's interesting. How did you get from uh, seminarian to atheist novels? Can I ask that? Yeah. Okay. Um. Oh man, that's a long story. Yeah, what's the short version? And I want you to define agnostic atheist also. Agnostic atheist. Um, I think that agnostic asks the question, what can I know? And atheist essentially means without God. And so 
agnostic would be, I don't know for sure, but what I've seen leads me to think that there isn't one. And so I just kind of live my life accordingly. So I, I think it's the more accurate. I think almost all atheists are agnostic. Even Richard Dawkins, he says, you know, he's he's a six on a scale of one to seven. So huh. you can think of So there's like a some there's sort of caution spectrum. that maybe Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, no, that's good to know. Uh as to how I got there, it was uh, no big dramatic story, you know, it's not like you know something horrible happened to me and I just lost faith. It just um going to seminary and just this feeling like I just never belonged and uh, this feeling like God wasn't, there was no guiding hand, you know, it just felt very much like uh, randomness, hmm. you know, and the more I started looking into that, um, the more I was convinced. And then the writing, where, where did the, where did the turn to writing happen? Well, in my context, where I was, you know, in, incredibly involved with church, um, my family is all, you know, deeply, you know, people of deep faith. Um, almost all my friends, my wife, my kids, all <laughs> church. And so there's this feeling like there is absolutely nobody to talk to. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there's nobody who can comprehend what I'm going through. And they kind of approached it. I felt like they would approach it like it was my choice, but I'd never felt like it was a choice. It was something that, that just kind of happened. I, I just, it was just a place I got to and, uh, just not feeling like I could talk to anybody, you know, I had to work it out somehow. And so my first book was that, and, uh, this book was kind of emerged from the frustration of trying to write the other one. <laughs> <laughs> And did you did you find you gained traction as you moved further and further into those, or I guess further away from um, the first book and into the second? Did that lend itself, um, I don't know, to more confidence in your convictions? Uh, it, it really helps me process. And when I can kind of look back and, and, and look and think, now is that really what I think or is that accurate? You know, I've got so, you know, I have a blog and I've got, probably 10 or 15 ones that I started and I've got, you know, I don't, I don't know if I really think this. I don't, I don't think I should put this out there. <laughs> and so I rarely put my, actually publish my things that I write on my log. Um, on second thought, I'm not going to publish this because it's yeah. the exact opposite of what I believe. <laughs> but you wouldn't so. have, you wouldn't have had that realization had you not written it, I bet. Right. Or it would have taken you longer. Yeah. Right. When I kind of see it on paper, especially when I'm fired up about something. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we see that with Twitter and Facebook. People just get riled up and then they start ranting about something. And then when they're calm and settled, they look back and go, well, maybe I went a little too far there. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought Twitter was the most reflective media oh, yeah. that, that we have available. Oh, yeah. Next so much Facebook self-reflection. Post. Yes. Yeah. That's what the tagline should be. Twitter, a place for self-reflection. I find it easier than Facebook. Meditative space. Namaste. Terry Gross. Terry Gross says namaste. Namaste. I'm saying it in some weird way. Namaste. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. From, like, 
planet I don't know what to not know how to say that properly. <laughs> oh, um, God. I'm curious about your publishing journeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, did anything surprise you about the publishing process? Was it, I don't know, any, uh, any tidbits for new authors? God, it just feels like something I just want to block out of my memory. <laughs> all the querying and stuff it's yeah you know it's just a soul-sucking experience um querying does suck in its own very specific way specifically horrifying way yeah and you know and it's that dichotomy paradox you know for no the the dream agent may have spilled coffee and said, oh, yes. crap. And then they, you know, in their cleanup, they hit delete and never even read your thing. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> yes. And most of them don't even reply. So it's like, well, did they right. read it? Did you they never know. get it? I don't know. It could be a coffee situation. I'm going to imagine that now when I don't hear back from a query. <laughs> yeah. They just, they just spilled yeah. coffee on their computer and everything, yeah. it all crashed. I was surprised when this contract came along. You know, it's a tiny little uh, publisher, but... It was a no-brainer for me because you still get the benefit of a professional editor and you know all of that, and mm. that alone is worth worth the you know the contract. So you had a good editorial relationship over yeah. there. Yeah, they're in Colorado, yeah. is that right? Yeah, um, the editor is actually in in uh, North Carolina. Uh, her name's Julie Paris. She was amazing. She was a really really great editor, and and I I, I think. You know, in large part, it was probably her influence that got it, you know, signed. So, you know, and I'm just incredibly cool. grateful to her. Are you a gardener or an architect? Uh, definitely a gardener. Plant the seeds and let them. Yeah. I thought I was an architect trying to do the sci-fi thing, but then I realized I'm better just, let's just see where this goes. You know? So that's, that's more interesting to me. books for what ails you Jess you guys ready for yeah. that okay number one book that you had in the back of your mind when writing the author is death uh maybe butterfly in the typewriter um it's a uh, biography of John Kennedy tool oh yeah oh yeah last book you binge read instead of doing all the other important things one has to do as a human uh Columbine that was a fascinating mm. it's nonfiction, but yeah fascinating yeah best book someone ever gave you that you were skeptical of but then loved ended up loving uh all the pretty horses mm. i just didn't like the title best sorry <laughs> it's too pretty right it's too pretty. <laughs> it's too pretty best life advice you've ever gotten from a book oh man that's tough guess i'll go with the hitchhiker's guide the answer to everything is 42 <laughs> perfect uh, i know you've written some sci-fi before if we've never read sci-fi fiction what's the best book you could recommend to get people into the genre it's a broad genre that's a tough one um i'll, I'll go with uh, rendezvous with rama by arthur c clark it's fascinating I, I read that when I was in high school. Yeah. yeah very yeah. good book. Just the whole concept of it, just 
is thrilling to me. I don't peg you as a sci-fi guy. Uh, I, I did have my long stretch of sci-fi. Did yeah. you? Was that assigned to you in school, or you, you just no, picked it up? No, I, I just picked it up. And then oh. you decided to get a PhD in theology? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's how this story straight goes. <laughs> it's a yeah, my, yeah. It's one my, straight line. Yeah, my, my story was more direct than chess. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, this is the bonus question. What's the, what's the last podcast you binge listened to? And you don't have to say effing Shakespeare because I already know you did that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I've listened to every episode of this. Um, oh, I would say uh, it was uh, Up and Vanished. My wife and I listened to that on the way back from St. Louis, taking my daughter to college. Is that the, the one with the, the um, French movie star who disappears? No, it's uh, about a just homecoming kidding. queen who just... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the one I'm talking about? I feel like we have a lot yeah. of inter- podcast intersection. <laughs> Up and Vanish is good. Fascinating. We haven't finished it. Okay. We'll yeah. check that one out. Same kind of thing, though. Um, this month is book month? Mm-hmm. That sounds so made up. It really is book month? Yes, it is. How did I not know that? <laughs> <laughs> Don't answer that. 42. The answer is 42. 42. Exactly. <laughs> We only uh, have 15 more minutes on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> Shut up, boo. <laughs> oh, man. I just I have this producer who just comes with the burns every day. So the question is, do you have any suggested readings for book month? Is that the question? Sure. Yes. You have all the answers and all the questions, apparently. <laughs> Go right ahead. I just have a podcast. <laughs> I just have Boo saying 42, 42, yeah. 42 over and over again. Like, and Andrew, I would be happy about that. Yes. I think this one's for you, Andrew. Yes. Proceed with the questioning. Uh, the author is dead. <laughs> the, oh, wow. Oh, that's a good yeah, that's, that's a perfect answer. I need the encouragement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> love the hitchhikers series anything by cormac mccarthy there's so many that are just great it's hard to pick pick one you know just go buy books and read them yeah <laughs> yes in general but see authors especially ones you haven't heard of people you haven't heard of <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly do you have one like that like that's maybe new new and new to you maybe I got one. We just picked up uh, in the book club. I've never read Clarice Lyspector. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how. Is she, she's like my spirit animal now. I don't know. Oh I mean, you know when you pick up that book and you're like, how did I not know this was out there? And I've been doing this so oh. long. Food, don't answer. Yeah. This, is a, this is a rhetorical question. You're not supposed to answer this question. Yeah. But... Yeah. I, that was the chandelier. Is that for me? I'm I'm not even done, and I'm just floored. On the on the um, Brazilian is Clarice this Brazilian, right? right? Yes. The book that I read, um, Casmuro from 1899. The author is Machado de Assis, but I don't know how to pronounce it in Portuguese because I don't know Portuguese. But I never really thought about Brazilian history during that time. 
and it's like Madame Bovary, but told from the husband's perspective. One I read recently that is probably not real well known is uh, Zero Saints by Gabino Iglesias in Austin. Um, it's a really interesting, dark, very dark, but I like that. So, um, but I think he's got a new one coming out pretty soon, and and uh, uh, he's he's an interesting guy. I think you know he's uh, I believe he's a high school teacher. So, I love it. He sees all kinds of horrible things. <laughs> <laughs> Boo, did you have a recommendation? Uh, uh, yes, uh, The Refugees by Vic Tan Nguyen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that should be on everyone's reading list. You should all go out and buy The Author is Dead at your local yes. purveyor of books. Braz's bookstore is one we highly recommend. Jess Smith, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you on the backs of the harried, unpaid, and not-quite-starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary, and also the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. And by Audible. Stop angry tweeting in traffic. I'm looking at you, Ford Fusion, going west on I-10. Listen to us, and then when you're done, listen to an audiobook from Audible. The title we recommend is Rachel Cusk's exceptional trilogy, beginning with book one, Outline. Effing Shakespeare listeners get a free title with a new membership. Go to audibletrial.com slash Shakespeare and read more widely today. I, don't, I think that's the first time that's ever happened in the history of Ethnic Shakespeare. I'm Kate Martin Williams. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fu Lu. And the doorbell's ringing. <laughs> Ding dong. <laughs> okay, we gotta do this later. Just a second. Terry Gross yes. story. Every podcast has to start with a Terry Gross story. No, um. Well, she... you, I feel like you have to preface it with, with chess. Oh, she's like my arch nemesis. (laughs) From uh, NPR? Yes, which is not true. I mean, like, she's the queen of radio and interviewing, and she's amazing and and all of those things. But I used to just deride her all the time because I found her irritating and these things. And then I started a podcast, and I was like, holy shit, I have to eat so much crow because... (laughs) <laughs> this is really freaking hard, and she's actually, you know, she's yeah. clearly good at what she does. So, so now I'm finding all these ways in which I uh, have so much to learn from her, and she seems to just like be sneaking into all kinds of facets of my life. And so I was listening to this podcast called "So Many White Guys," and she was on with Phoebe Robinson interviewing her, and she tells. She, this is so Terry Gross. She tells the story of falling in love with her her partner who she'd been... They were together for 18 years before they ever got married. Mm-hmm. The thing about Terry Gross is she asks her questions and then gets out of the way for her yeah. her, her right. guests to speak and, and be heard. And so when it's time to interview her, it's like... She's like, I'll just get out of the way quickly. Yeah, it's like, it was so funny. You guys gotta go check it out. She like she well, meets him at a record store, and you want you're like, oh, that's really cool, but it's not because he's like a 
you know how when at the end of a yoga class you say namaste which is like the light in me mm-hmm. what is yeah. it just the light in me recognizes respects the light, the, the, yeah. the light in you mm-hmm. That was the moral of the whole the whole love story. Was like, Cherry <laughs> goes to the brain, recognized the brain in Francis, and they like bowed to each other, and then then there was like, there's no need to like profess love. It was just like, we are both yeah. smart, Over and, out. Yes. and we will now Roger. rule the radio waves. Giggling to myself in the car, the maniacally. I see you, Terry Gross. I see you.